0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, that was certainly a sweet time in the Lord. Amen. We are in Proverbs chapter 10 this morning. As we continue to make our way through the book of Proverbs, we enter now into a a different section of the book. First, uh, nine chapters really... Solomon, obviously we can glean wisdom from it, but Solomon is primarily speaking with his son, or to his son. As you enter into chapter 10, and each chapter specifically was, I want to talk to you about this son, and then he goes in that chapter talking about it and and making his way through. As we move into chapter 10, we get to what people traditionally think of the Proverbs, where it's sort of these short little statements, each verse kind of saying something different about a, a different, it's a different word of wisdom for a different topic. And so from chapter 10 through chapter 24, that's where we're going to be. That's what we're going to be looking at are these statements of wisdom. It's a challenging section to study. I know that in my quiet times when I'm reading through the book of Proverbs, and I know a lot of you, you might read a proverb a day for 31 days, that sort of thing. It becomes a little bit challenging because just as you start to think about one verse you move into a completely different topic, and, and so you get bogged down verse by verse. And, and so it's going to be a challenge to, to really dig into every single verse uh, here uh, in these next 14 chapters or so. Uh, but we'll do so, and uh, I, I think the Lord certainly has something for us in it. I, I think what we'll begin to discover is there's a series of patterns or uh, themes that keep recurring, and so we'll look at them as we go, and, and perhaps we'll spend some more time On this verse, looking at that theme, and the next time when we hit a similar verse talking about the same theme, perhaps we won't go as deep into it since uh, we just did, and so on. If there is a common thread that runs through these verses that are set before us as the reader, the common thread is the choice between good and evil, or the choice between blessing and curse. So that's the common thing that we're going to see. So you'll see a number of one-verse, maybe two-verse statements that there's a statement that is made, the word but, and then, if you will, the opposite statement that is being made, comparing good and evil, comparing blessing and curse. example of that, if you look at verse 1 of Proverbs 10, it says, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but, there's the first statement, a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. And it's going to pretty much continue that way through the next uh, 14 chapters or so. So let me pray for us as we dig in now. Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, I, We sing that last song about uh, this being the air I breathe and your, your very word spoken to me. And uh, Lord, we know that Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And, and certainly, Lord, as we've been studying wisdom Lord, we've been reminded that it is your word that teaches us and guides us and that we do indeed live this life here on this earth, the abundant life that you've called us to live, Lord, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and that it's for rebuking and training and correction in righteousness. And so, Lord, we delight in it. We thank you for it. We pray that you would minister now to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first verse I read, uh, it is a contrast, a comparison, between the impact that a wise person can have, a wise son can have, and the impact that a foolish son can have. And Solomon says here that a wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother or to his mom. Now, of course, we could interchangeably put the word daughter in this, in there as well. So whether it's a wise son or a foolish son or a wise daughter or a foolish daughter, what we know is that a son or daughter in so many ways has the ability to make a parent glad or to bring grief uh, to their parent. And anyone here that has a wayward child or has had a wayward child, you can certainly testify to the rest of us that the behavior and decisions that your son or your daughter makes, almost without exception, directly affects your emotional health and where you are at any given time. And for the believing parent, our desire is that while we want good things for our kid, we want our kid to be healthy, we want our kid to be successful, we want our kid to be able to pursue his or her dreams and have positive relationships, we want all of these things certainly for our kid. For the believing parent, our greatest satisfaction is knowing that the children we have are where they need to be Christ, with Christ and that they're walking with Christ. Is that not right? Okay. And conversely, the greatest sorrow of a believing parent is to see their children depart the way of wisdom, of wisdom. And so all the joys that are derived from the successes of life, great job, good education, nice family, relative comfort here on the earth, all of those joys lose their luster a bit if they are not accompanied by spiritual success as well. And so assuming your desire is to be a blessing, kids I'm talking to now, uh, to your mom or dad, then these are words of inspiration to you as you make decisions about the path that your life is going to go down. And the word is simply this, a son or daughter's wisdom is a father and a mother's joy. And so young people, in seeking to make decisions that are gonna bless your mom and your dad, notice this, you're also making decisions that benefit you. So some kids just can't stand their parents and I wanna stick it to them. You're sticking it to yourself when you think you're gonna stick it to mom or dad. Now certainly you are hurting mom or dad, but in the long run you're hurting yourself as well. The fifth commandment of our Bibles tells us this, honor your father and mother, and then it goes on from there, that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord Lord your God is giving you. Paul paraphrases that commandment in the New Testament. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So you look at all the commandments, the four that come before it. This is the first one that adds that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Often, perhaps you've heard me say in conversation, oftentimes I'll say with people uh, that, look, we desire good, uh, good things for you. So we might say, you know, look, your mom and dad, they desire good things for you. Or look, we at the church here, we desire good things for you. And Solomon would agree with that. This verse demonstrates that. No one desires better than a parent for their child. And so Solomon here, he reminds us of this truth in this verse. A wise son makes a glad father. A foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Straightforward statement of truth. So kids, be good. Ultimately, what I mean by that is make decisions that are wise for your own benefit and your parents will be blessed that you have. Now look at verse 2. Verse 2 and 3 really go together. It says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but He thwarts the craving of the wicked. Both of these proverbs have to do with the pursuit of money. Solomon says, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Certainly, treasures gained by wickedness, treasures gained by sin, they may profit in the temporary. But in the end, those treasures will have no power to deliver a person. Notice what Solomon says from death. And so whereas they may profit in the temporary, they will not profit when a person comes to the end of their days. The only thing that profits when a person comes to the end of their days is the righteousness of God in Christ alone. Only the righteousness of God in Christ alone can do that. And so we see treasure gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Jesus would say in the New Testament, what does it profit a man if he gains the entire world and yet loses his soul? Solomon's point here is that righteousness, not wealth, should be a man's chief goal. Because he who dies with the most toys still dies. And so the, all those toys and all of that wealth will be meaningless to a person that acquired them with wickedness. A person that's living for money is always going to need a little bit more money. There's no satisfaction in that. Now, of course, or maybe not of course, maybe you don't know this, money in and of itself is not evil. There are a lot of people think that money Is evil. And the Bible's clear, and people will quote the Bible. The Bible says money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. I guess you could put those words together to make it say that. But what the Bible says is that the love of money is the root of all evil. And so money in and of itself is not evil. People that have money in and of themselves are not evil. But when a person begins to love money, that is when evil enters in. It's been said that money can be a wonderful servant, but a cruel master. And it's how you look at and how you respond to the acquisition of wealth or the possession of wealth that demonstrates what kind of effect money can have on your life. Because when wealth becomes a person's chief aim, when wealth becomes a person's love, and they are now willing to do anything to obtain that wealth or to maintain that wealth, including all manner of wickedness, such gain will not profit a man, though they may be the wealthiest person in our society or in our communities. And the reason is, is because God cannot bless such gain. When, when treasures are gained by wickedness, they will not profit a man or a woman. Because the Lord cannot bless such gain. And as I said, in the hour of death, they will be of no value to a man. But what God can bless is a life that is, per- is spent on the pursuit of righteousness. The Lord can bless that. And so that is what we should be seeking after because such a life, a life that is in pursuit of righteousness, is a life that has the power to overcome death, or to use Solomon's words, to deliver from death. Righteousness preserves a person. It preserves a person from the perils of a sinful life, and certainly we've talked about it, generally speaking, a life that is lived according to righteousness tends to be, here on the earth, safer and healthier than one that is given over to sin. And so in that sense, in a, in a practical, earthly sense, a life that is given over to righteousness preserves from the perils of a sinful life. And certainly, as I've said, the righteousness of God in Christ delivers a person from eternal death. And so ultimately, it protects us in that regard as we look to another to take the judgment for our sins. Now the objection might be raised, well, i got to do what i got to do. And so, yeah, I understand that pursuing righteousness is important. And I understand that treasures gained from wickedness you know, will not profit a man. But i got to do what i got to do. A man's got to eat. His family's got to eat, you might hear someone say. And Solomon addresses that in verse 3. He says, the Lord does not let the, hung, the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the, the wicked. The promise of Scripture is that the Lord will bless and provide for the one in pursuit of righteousness, and at the same time thwart the, the craving of the wicked. Because the Lord knows our need. The Lord knows that we need food. The Lord knows that we need shelter and these things. And he promises to meet those needs. Jesus addressed this in the New Testament. In Matthew 6, he said, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we wear? For the, the unbeliever, the Gentiles, seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, seek first his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added to you. And so when a person makes the decision to walk in righteousness, they discover a richness in their soul and God's provision in their life. Do you believe that? I do too. Thank you. King David said in Psalm 37, he said, I've been young and now I'm old yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread because the lord knows our needs and our responsibility is to seek him and he promises to meet these needs now we're going to come back to it does that mean I can just sit in my my sunroom sit in my, my quiet time chair and just read the bible all day and food will magically appear up on the uh, on the stove That's actually how it works because my wife makes the food, um, you know, in so many ways. But assuming she wasn't there, would it just magically appear? We'll talk about that uh, in a few minutes. We'll come to that verse in a few moments here. But continuing this idea about our job being to seek him, notice how Solomon goes on. He promises that at the same time he promises to thwart the craving of the wicked. And so there where it says it, he thwarts the craving of the wicked. And so this statement that we oftentimes hear, well, you know, as far as money is concerned, how much is enough? And people will respond, well, just a little bit more. You know, you got millions and millions of dollars in the bank. Well, how much more do you need? Ah, just a little bit more. Just want to turn that number over one more time or whatever. Because the craving is never satisfied. And just as a person reaches that which they think will satisfy, satisfaction doesn't actually come. And so then they have to run even further because everything that a person is looking for in earthly treasures, peace, security, meaning, notoriety in a community, everything that a person is looking for in earthly treasures, they're found in Christ. It's in a relationship and in a right relationship with Christ that peace is found and meaning is found and security and confidence to walk in this world, all of those things are found in Christ, not in the fleeting treasures of this earth. And so Solomon makes that clear because we know it's the Lord that brings peace, not just for the next world, but even in this world as well. And so Solomon makes his point there in verses uh, three and uh, 2 and 3. Notice he goes on in verse 4, again changing directions. He says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes peace rich. Here's God's promise in this verse, that the person that is inattentive in life, the person that is lazy, is going to become poor, but the one who is diligent and aggressive is going to succeed. That's Solomon's point in this particular verse, that hard work and diligence, generally speaking, lead to success, while laziness and shoddy work, generally speaking, leads to failure. There used to be an American proverb many years ago, like in the early years of our nation, that said, the stirring hand gets the penny. The stirring hand gets the penny. Most of us don't even want the penny anymore. Now you can have it and leave it there on the ground. But back in that day, that meant something. The stirring hand gets the penny. Those that succeed are those that are busy and out doing something. I think of the movie uh, The Pursuit of Happiness, Will Smith movie. And you see this guy that is impoverished. He's struggling. He's homeless for the most... Well, he is. He's homeless. He and his young son. And if you haven't seen the movie, I I think it's a good one to watch. And he pounds the pavement. And he works. And he's up at night when his kid's sleeping. And he's pouring himself out because he sees the life that he wants to have. He sees the thing that he wants to do. And he doesn't give up and he doesn't stop until he gets to that particular place. The stirring hand gets the penny. In that book, Chris Gardner, True Life Story, he got the penny. He got what he was going after. William Arnaud, I quote him a lot from his book, Laws from Heaven for Life on Earth. He said, the earth brings forth thorns instead of grapes, unless it is cultivated by the labor of man. The earth brings forth thorns instead of grapes, unless it is cultivated by the labors of man. Some of you may have beautiful lawns at home. Just stop mowing it for a month and see what happens to it. It'll quickly turn And unless there's a watchful heart and diligent hands, then whether it's debt or it's the the thorns overtaking uh, our lawn or what have you, they're going to rise above the gains, so to speak. And so Solomon's word here is this, those who are diligent and honest, those who are careful about their affairs, and when they do do them, they do them with all of their might, in a way that the Lord can bless, those are the ones Solomon says are going to have success here on the earth. And I think this rule, certainly that applies just in the normal course of things. If you're a student, if you're diligent and you work hard, you're going to see success. If you're a, a person in society trying to make a living, if you're diligent and you work hard, you're going to see success. But I think it also applies Not just to the business of life, but also to concerns of our soul. Spiritual matters as well. One commentator I read, he said this. He who would gain in godliness must put his soul into the business. That he who would gain in godliness must work in his relationship with God. And I'll clarify what I mean by that. But slothfulness in your spiritual walk will lead to spiritual poverty if you just sort of go with emotions and you pop in from time to time at church and and so on, and maybe every now and again you pick up your Bible, you're not going to advance in your walk. Just as a person who approached schooling like that, education like that, or a person that approached their particular job like that is not going to be invited in for the promotion. You're not going to advance forward if you're slothful in the pursuit of your spiritual walk or in diligence in your spiritual walk. It's those who are fervent in pursuit of the things of the Spirit and their service of the Lord, those are the ones that will likely end up being rich in the faith, so to speak. And so I think it's healthy for us from time to time to just sort of take inventory of where am I with the Lord? Because what I've noticed with a lot of people, and I'm getting older and and I've been in the Lord here for a little while and I've been in relationship with a number of you and so if I'm getting older, so are you, you're getting older as well. And one of the things that I've seen in folks that have been in the Lord for a little bit of a while is that vigorous pursuit of the things of righteousness when their relationship with God started out begins to fade a little bit as they sort of just get into the mundane of walking with Jesus. And so I think it's, uh, it's helpful from time to time to take inventory. How am I doing? Am I still growing? Am I still advancing forward in my walk with the Lord? Am I still diligent? about my spiritual walk? Am I diligent about my personal quiet times? My pursuit of meaningful fellowship? Not just kind of chit-chatting with people, but meaningful, deep fellowship? Am I diligent about my study of God's Word and the exercising of my spiritual gifts? Proverbs 10.4 makes clear, it's the hand of the diligent that is made rich. And that truth applies both in the physical as well as the spiritual. Spiritual. Now along those lines, look at verse 5, Solomon, he says, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. So to, to make the connection from the spiritual and how these two verses might connect there is you may be humming along in life and everything is growing, going great and the kids are doing well and the job is fine and everything is perfect and fantastic. Inevitably, there's going to come a crisis in your life. Inevitably. At some point in time or another, you're going to have some difficulty at work. At some point in time or another, you're going to have difficulty in your community. At some point in time or another, someone you love is going to unexpectedly die. The crisis will come. And the time to prepare for then is now. And as you're diligent in your walk with the Lord now, when things are great, that's the prudent son, that's the one who gathers in the summer, you'll be prepared when the challenges and the difficulties come so to speak, in the winter season. And so again, he says, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. The one who sleeps when he should be out reaping, that summertime is, is reaping time, the one who is sleeping in the summertime is not wise. When he should have been out preparing and laying up for the winter, he's instead taking his ease and laying up for himself great difficulty. And because of his slackness now, come winter, he's going to find himself woefully unprepared. And such a lack of preparation will only lead to shame for the person, regret for the person. Why didn't I do more to prepare myself for this particular place? I think there's a whole variety of applications for this. Certainly it applies to the spiritual, as I just suggested. I think it applies to the very practical. It speaks of preparing and storing up for our futures. And so the one who is slack in gathering during their working years will encounter great difficulty when it comes time to retire. Very practical, not very spiritual, just straightforward. If you're slack during your working years in gathering for your retirement years, you will have difficulty when you come to face retirement. Do you know what the average American has put away for their retirement? Not enough. The average American, according to some study I read, has $5,000 saved up for retirement. Good luck with that. Now, of course, they have uh, Social Security because that'll be around forever uh, (laughs) and is doing so well, you know, so I think many Americans are going to uh, experience the consequences of the decisions now when they come to that day then. The family, the parents, I've come to discover this and I've come to realize some mistakes that I have made uh, in preparing to pay for my kids to go to school. And so when my kids were one and five and 12, I gave very little thought to the fact that most colleges cost a lot of money. And so the family that is slack in saving for college, for instance, when their kids are eight years old, are going to be panicking when their kids are 18 years old, correct? Certainly so. I think this verse can speak to our preparation students in the classroom. We have a lot of college students here. We have a number of high school students uh, and so on here. And and some of you are going back for post-grad degrees and so on. And so it speaks of our preparation in the classroom. And so the one who is slack in taking in the material and just sort of kind of makes their way into class half asleep and hardly pays attention and doesn't have a pen when they're gonna sit down to hear uh, what the professor has to share with them. And then when it's time to study, oh yeah, I, I read over my notes, I should be good. That student tends to not do very well on the test. And so the person who's slack in the times of preparation, when it comes time to reap the harvest, so to speak, they're going to experience it. The person in their career and preparing for their career if they're slack during that time of preparation, they're likely gonna have difficult when it's time to perform. And so you can use your time now diligently so that you will be prepared then. I heard a quote once by Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer was a great golfer, the Tiger Woods of his day, or whoever's good now in golf. Jordan Spieth or something like that. Who's, any golfers here? No, nobody, nobody likes golf. Okay, <laughs> me either. But, but anyhow, my dad likes golf, so I, try to pretend I like it, too, and I talk to him about it. Uh, But Arnold Palmer, he used to say this, golf is a game of luck. It's a game of luck. And the more I practice, the luckier I get, is what he said. And the idea is you practice now, you be diligent during the time of preparation, you'll see that you have success during the the output, so to speak. Now, there's a second truth that we learn from this verse, and it's the, the truth of finishing well. And so, as I said, summertime is a reaping time. And this statement, it presumes that there was stuff planted in the springtime that can be reaped in the summertime. And so the people did the hard work of planting it, but now when it's time to finish well, they're not prepared to finish well. They're not interested in finishing well. I just want to sleep. I just want to relax. I don't want to do anything. And they had a great start, but they're neglecting the finish. And the verse teaches us it would be senseless to go to all the labor of plowing and planting and cultivating the crops only to sleep when time comes to harvest the crops. And so we are exhorted in Scripture to finish well. Finish well. Maybe you started great in your walk with the Lord. You've had this spell where you were just running and running and running and advancing so much in your walk with the Lord, feeling so close to Him and experiencing growth in your life. Finish well. Finish well. Paul said this to Timothy. This is the end of Paul's life. And he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. It's a crying day today, apparently. I hear. He says, I have kept the faith. I so want to be able to say that at the end of my life. And I suspect many of you do as well. It's great to start well, but it's more important to finish well. Verse 6, Solomon says, Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. There's a law. It's the law of the harvest that we reap what we sow And so the person who sows an upright life, they will always receive the blessing of God. A person who sows an upright life will always receive the blessing of God. And generally, even in this fallen world, a person that sows an upright life will generally receive the praise of men. Often you'll hear a person dies and a statement that is made about that person is, it was a life well lived. They lived their life well. The praise of men at the same time, the mouth of the wicked, it says, shall be covered. That's how some of those verses render that particular phrase where it says the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Many verses or many versions render that the mouth of the wicked shall be covered. There will be no boasting in that day. The wicked are not going to come to the end of their days, stand in front of God, and begin to boast about their wicked life and all that they did and all that they accomplished here on the earth. There will be no... Long, impassioned pleas, seeking to excuse their wickedness here on the the earth. The wicked live life poorly. And when they come to the end of their days, they will face the consequences of those decisions. Their mouth will be covered. Not a word will be spoken in their defense. Verse 7 says, The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Both the just and the wicked will die. In the grave, there is absolutely no visible difference between the wicked person's body and the just person's body. But there is a great difference between their souls when those bodies go to the grave. And so here on the earth, the memory of both the righteous and the wicked will live on. Blessed men will leave behind blessed memories. And a holy life will linger long after a person is gone. But the name of the wicked, though it lives on, it does not live on as a sweet-smelling fragrance. It's a name that... it's a, it's a a The person, the stench, if you will, that lives on is a repugnant stench. Not a sweet-smelling fragrance, but a repugnant stench. And so you can think of some of the wicked people of history. And when their name is brought up, like the story of the book of Esther, and whenever the name Haman is mentioned... And in the Jews in that little game they play, but probably more times than not, they boo, if you will. You hear other names in some cultures and people will spit on the ground after the name is mentioned. I'm sure in our culture a little different, but you may hear the name of a person nah, or whatever. It just it's it's a repugnant stench. I like the it was a simple observation. One of the commentators I read, he said this, men still call their sons Paul, not Judas. Because Paul's name lives on. Judas' lives on as well, and we don't name our kid Judas, we name our Rottweiler Judas or whatever so that people won't, you know, break into our backyard and things like that. Or Jezebel or something. And so just a simple question that I think every one of us can ask that's going to impact the decisions that we make here on the earth is, how would you like people to remember you? How would you like your name to go down, so to speak, in the history? Uh, in in history and in the history of the people that you've interacted well. Live with. Live well in these days so that the memory of your life in those days will will evoke thoughts of blessing and not thoughts or feelings of contempt. The memory of the righteous lives on. Verse 8 says, Now the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. The wise receive commandments, as we've said previously in our study of Proverbs, and they are thankful for them. It's a pleasure for them to have opportunities to learn. So again, a simple question is, are you teachable? Are you teachable? And many times as Christians, we we begin to grow older and older, and I don't need anyone to tell me any longer. I know already. I've been walking with the Lord so many years. Are you teachable? Receptiveness is the key mark of those that are growing in life. And we are to be growing in life until the day we come to the end of our lives. And so are you teachable? Because a wise person is willing to listen to sound advice, even to the end of their days. Jesus pointed to the receptiveness of a little child, and he said that that is the way to enter the kingdom of heaven. His words you may recall. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He points to the receptiveness of a child because a child knows that they don't know. and That's why when they're real little, they'll, they'll do the whole why stage. You know, why, why, why. Please stop talking. You know, But they want to know. They don't know. And so they want to know everything. A child knows that they don't know. They're ready to receive. Now conversely, a babbling fool, on the other hand, won't be quiet long enough to receive anything. Because they're just constantly babbling and so they're going to come to ruin. Because of their unwillingness to learn and then to obey what they've learned, Solomon says that person will come to ruin. And so for the babbling fool, perhaps we have some with us. Stop spouting off all that you think you know and instead begin to receive from those that actually do know. And from the Word of God. Again, are you teachable? Is the Lord able to minister to you? Are you able to learn and even go, continue to go deeper still? The fool, being empty, busies himself giving out, talking, babbling, instead of taking in. And the result is that the fool becomes more empty. But it's the wise heart that is ready to receive. The wise heart that is ready to learn. If ever a fool is going to become wise, they must first begin to receive commandments. And then as they continue to do that, then they will continue to grow wiser and wiser and wiser. You've heard it said, two ears, one mouth, speak in proportion, proper proportion. Listen more than you talk. I'm sure some of you are looking at me, amen. You know, easy. So wise brother and sister, don't stop learning. Keep digging in, keep advancing, keep growing. Don't stop allowing God's word to search you out. I think a lot of times we can read God's Word. I'm thinking quiet times in particular, and our eyes have sort of glazed over. Oh, I've read this. Yeah, I'm familiar with this. Maybe we remember some old sermon. I know what this is all about. God's Word is living and active. And so we have to allow ourselves to enter in. Allow it to minister to our hearts. That's the wise person. We don't want to come to the place where we have nothing left to take in because we've already got The wise heart receives commandments, keeps receiving commandments. And may that be said of each of us as we continue to walk with Jesus, right? Yes. Now, verse 9 continues. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. We have a saying in America, honesty is the best policy. Solomon would agree with that. That the person who walks in integrity does not need to walk around each day wondering if today is the day they're going to get caught for their past transgressions. Looking over their shoulder, I hope they don't find me today. You know, you hear stories of folks that for 30, 40 years they had gotten away with something and then it came back and it bought them. I remember there was a story of a, a fella in Hamilton, New Jersey, 10, 20 minutes away from here, according to my friend Adam, what do you call it, Indonesia or something? That we always approach it as Hamilton, so far away, it's not too far from here. And this fellow was previously a guard in a Nazi prison camp. And somehow he made his way to the United States, changed his name, changed his background, changed his story. And somewhere around 80 years old, his sin caught up with him. And all that was associated with that. It's the person who walks in integrity that doesn't need to look over their shoulder and wonder if today is the day they're going to get caught. Conversely, men's dishonesty will be their shame because at some time or another, a man's sin will betray him and a woman's sin will betray her. Moses wrote in the book of Numbers, he says, be sure that your sin will find you out. Likely here on the earth, definitely in the day of judgment. Here on the earth, God has a way of making an example of the crooked and using the consequences of their behavior as a warning for others that might be thinking of going down that path as well. As I see that word crooked there in the verse, I think of Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon's famous phrase, I am not a crook, he says, yes you are, (laughs) yes you were, you know, and this. But that Watergate lesson, how often when a president or some elected official gets involved in some potentially scandalous thing, how often do people refer back to Watergate And the crooked deeds of the president at that time that got caught in that. And so God has a way of making an example of the crooked here on the earth and using the consequences of their behavior as a warning for others that might be thinking of going down that path as well. What Solomon is showing us here, remember these contrasts, is that there is safety and security in an upright life, but that a life that is built on deception will be found out and it will be exposed. That our integrity will be security for us, For the one that walks uprightly, and a person thus has no need to fear for being exposed. It is so good to have a clear conscience, isn't it? To be able to just walk through life confident. Yeah, I may have made mistakes and things like that, but I did not do so with intent necessarily. And yeah, I'm willing to face whatever consequences there may be for my mistake, but I know my conscience is right with God And it can be right with those that are around me. Prophet Isaiah, the Prophet Isaiah, he said this, The effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. The effect of righteousness will be peace. That peace is priceless. That peace is priceless. And it's a peace that only integrity can purchase. And so, for a lot of our young people here, if you're figuring out what kind of life you want to live, the rest of us here that are older or kind of have been living life, start again if you need to. As you're walking through this earth and figuring out what kind of life you want to live, live a life of integrity. And then you will have a life that is marked by peace all of your days. And again, that life is priceless. Verse 10 goes on, Whoever winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool... Will come to ruin. Second time, Solomon references in this uh, chapter the babbling fool. Chuck Smith used to say, Better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you're a fool than to open it and dispel all doubt. A babbling fool. Now, the context here of the babbling fool is the fast talker. And this is the person that deceives with their many words. It's the salesman, if you will, the sales uh, person that can just talk past you and get you so wound up in their words that you end up making a decision that you didn't necessarily want to say. The fast talker, or in this case the babbling uh, talker, whatever the, the phrase, babbling fool there, is the one who deceives with his many words or says one thing while meaning another. What Solomon has in mind here is the conniver. This is the person that is bent on mischief. I used to play the board game Risk with people. I used to take great pride in my ability to deceive others during the game as I would just very carefully use my words to have an agreement over here, and then they would take all their armies, f- if you don't know the game, just I'll be back in a minute, all right? but over here, they would move all their armies thinking they had an agreement with me, but I was very careful to say, oh, no, no, our agreement was South America and Africa, never with the United States, and then I'd hit them, and I'd kill them, and it was too late for them, and I'd drive them out, and I'd win the game. That's unhealthy. <laughs> and so I stopped playing that. But I was bent on mischief. Mischief. Here, we, it seems there's this team of trouble seekers, this team of troublemakers. And one is distracting with the words. And you see there, it talks about how they, they wink with their eyes. They're communicating with their eyes. A couple of times back, I guess it was March or so, we were traveling in Nepal and we were going out to one of the villages where we were going to do our pastor's conference. And we stopped along the way of this bus route, and we came to this place where we can go to the bathroom, get a little something to eat or whatever. Hopefully your sick stomach could be settled a little bit. Then you get back on uh, the road again. And Dan, you may recall, Dan and Bill Shea and Josh, we were all together. Eric was there with me. And we were, a couple of us were sort of sitting there, just white guys, you know, clearly not from the community. And we could see these guys communicating with their eyes. And some of the folks that were with me were off elsewhere, and we could see these guys conniving, settling up. They have a big problem with pickpockets and stuff in the city and at these little rest stops. And these guys, were, they were making their plans. Right, Josh? Am I crazy? They were making their plans to come over and to, you know, hey, are you new to the area? So great to, you know, and fast talking to me while another one is reaching into my pocket. And I remember Josh and Dan and Bill, they were like, we should get out of here. Let's go back to the bus. And I remember Eric and I were like, I hope they do come up here. Right? right? I'm, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell them about the Lord or whatever. But the wise, we left. We left the area and we got out of there. Little did they know we had no money. We we got, you know, like, I got nothing, you know what I mean? Like, so, anyway, we move on. Solomon says here, you know, they're winking with their eyes. Notice he says, they cause trouble. Now, you can see the evidence is that they cause trouble for themselves, look, and a babbling fool will come to ruin. So they're causing trouble for themselves, but they're causing trouble for everyone that they come in contact with. And so we, as people that are seeking to be wise, we would do well to avoid such individuals, lest they ensnare us in the trouble that they are bringing upon themselves. And so don't join up with them, lest you be brought down in their ruin. Verse 11 says, Now the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked, that conceals violence. Jesus said, Out of the mouth... The abundance of the heart speaks. James, he wrote in the New Testament, he spoke of the power of our mouths, or he uses the word, the power of our tongues. Let me read that to you. He says, so also the tongue is a small member of the body, part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among its members staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind but no human being can tame the tongue it's a restless evil full of deadly poison i think all of us know that we can't we can't tame our tongue it's only through the power of god that we're able to control our tongue and the things that we say and the way that we say those things. It says, God is doing a work in our hearts that those words make their way out of our mouths. James would say, and he would go on to say in James chapter 3, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. His point there is the hypocrisy of using the tongue to bless God and then using the tongue to curse our fellow man. But I think there's a greater point in that as well is to just take notice of how each of us possesses the ability to either be a blessing or a curse to, the other, to others. And again, out of the abundance of our hearts, our mouth speaks. According to Solomon, the mouth of a righteous person is a well of life. It flows with words of edification and words of comfort and words of good counsel. And so if our hearts are full of righteousness, then blessing will come forth from our mouths and all of those that are near those overflowing waters will be blessed by them it's a well of life somebody has said this that the world is a desert and the righteous are wells in it and how our fallen world needs for the righteous to be able to come into a setting and an environment and speak words of truth and blessing into the barrenness of the desert of this world your words are an excellent indicator of how you're doing spiritually your words are a magnificent indicator of how you're doing spiritually. And so just look at your life. Do you find that God brings, uses you to bring peace and comfort and encouragement to other people with the words that you speak? Well, that's a good indicator that your heart is in a good place. If, on the other hand, you find yourself constantly putting others down or bad-mouthing mouthing other people or cutting others with your words, I'm willing to bet that you are not where you need to be spiritually. I'm willing to bet that. Now, I'm not saying you're not a believer, but perhaps there's a little too much flesh ruling your life and a little too much flesh that is coming forth out of your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, Solomon will go on and give one example of wicked speech coming from a wicked heart, and he says it's the stirring up of strife that accompanies a person's hatred. He says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. A hateful spirit is not satisfied to forgive and to move on. A hateful spirit insists on raking up old grudges and quarrels and dragging others into the controversy. Conversely, a heart of love, it says, draws a curtain of secrecy over the faults and failures of others. I find it interesting here, even when there's no real reason for strife, a person with a hateful spirit goes about seeking occasion to create strife. It says, stirs up strife. And so they they go, did you hear what she said? Did you see what she did? And they go on and on from there and they stir it up. Love, on the other hand, instead of proclaiming and aggravating the offense, as much as possible, love looks to conceal the offense. Love will look to excuse the offense, recognizing that, you know, I've offended others so many times, and even in these exact same ways as now I'm being offended. And so love will forgive. Love is the great peacemaker. Now, this does not mean that we never confront sin, or we mask and cover up wrongdoing. What it does mean, though, is that when exposition is necessary, that we do so in such a way that looks to bring healing and remedy. Not merely get even with the other person. Or make them feel bad about what it is that they have done. Peter quotes this verse in the New Testament. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4 and he says this, Above all, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And in the context of 1 Peter... It's discussing the church being the church in the last days. Interacting with one another, caring for one another, loving one another, even as we see the end of days coming. First Peter chapter 4. And so for us, as we share life together as a church, we're not just some club where we gather from time to time. We are a place where we are grow, that we can leave this place and minister to other people and to one another. And so we share life with one another. And in doing that, before long, One or the other, no doubt, is going to offend the other. Just by the very process of us investing into one another. At some point in time, we're going to say something we shouldn't have said. We're going to do something that we shouldn't have done. And the way of wisdom, Peter is telling us, as the church is to be the church, the way of wisdom is to respond in love, not hatred. Responding in hatred, that may feel good for the moment. I got even. I let them know no one's walking on me. I stood my ground. That may feel good in the moment, but it will not accomplish what you're ultimately hoping that it will accomplish. The way of wisdom is to respond in love. Love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 13 says, On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. And earlier I quoted, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The person that has understanding, the person that has wisdom, will have that understanding, that wisdom, found on their lips. Again, it's a reference to the word, the words that they speak. So a person's understanding words, a person of understanding's words, it's going to reveal the treasure of wisdom that has been stored up in their hearts, and it's from that treasury that they will speak. And notice, that treasury is not only going to be a benefit for the one with understanding, but it will be a benefit for those that hear that person's words as well, assuming they put them into action. So the person that has a treasury of wisdom, a treasure of wisdom, has been blessed so that they can be a blessing to other people. And again, if that hearer is wise, they're going to take those words, and then they're going to begin to store up their own treasure as well and to continue to move, move forward with that. But notice it says in the verse, but not the one that lacks sense. It says, a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. All they're storing up for themselves is the discipline that their foolishness is earning for them. Verse 14, the wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. It's the wisdom of the wise to store up treasure of useful knowledge now so that it will be at their ready later when they need it. Wise people value knowledge and not just head knowledge. They value wisdom, and they store it up for the appropriate moment. As I read the Word, as you read the Word, as we come on a Sunday morning and gather, not every Bible verse that I read in my quiet time in the morning is directly impacting the things I do later in my day. Not every time that doesn't happen. Not every time that we come and we hear a sermon today, are we ready for what we're going, because of the sermon we heard today, ready for what we're going to encounter tomorrow but sometimes the verse I read on Monday of this year and store up in my heart is getting ready to help me in six months from now. And the sermon that I hear this day is preparing me for three years from now when that particular thing is coming. Because what we do is we store up these treasures so that the Holy Spirit can bring these things to remembrance in those days that we're going to need them. We treasure them away in our heart, allowing the Holy Spirit to bring them to our recollection and the wise man the wise woman sees every opportunity as a learning opportunity and stores that information up, that knowledge up as they obtain it but not just through sitting in a bible study but i think the wise person treasures up not the knowledge they gain from their experiences as well and the lessons that can be learned from experiences whether those experiences be positive and negative are you learning from experience? Are you learning from the experience of others? I have no problem at all with a person that makes a mistake or whatever on this particular thing at this particular time. They, they put themselves out there, they worked hard, they tried to do something and a mistake occurred. I have a problem when they don't learn from that mistake. I think the Lord does as well. We blow it, we mess up. I still didn't invest myself into this. I can't believe I keep making the same mistake. The Lord's going to deal with that person. You confess your sin, the Lord says, all right, now get out there. Slap you on the butt, get out there, go do it again. And you start running again. All right? But we've got to learn from our experiences, just as we learn from sitting down and reading the Word. And I think it's really wise, this is like advanced placement wisdom. I think it's really wise when people are able to learn from other people's experiences. That's wisdom, friends. I don't have to put my hand on the stove to learn it burns, because I see your skin melting away, because you did it. That's wisdom. And so we read the missionary biographies, and we read the testimonies of other people, and we read those resources that others have shared sort of their story and the things that they've learned from positive and negative experiences, and we glean that wisdom and apply it to our lives. That's wisdom. Learn from your experiences. Learn from the experiences of others. The wise person stores up the knowledge gained from those experiences so that when the time comes, they'll be able to employ that wisdom. Sounds good? That's a lot of material, a lot of different things. Find something to take and to chew on and to dig with. I imagine every one of us will take a different verse. But we'll close there for the day. Let's pray. Father, this is like a, this is like a buffet of things that we can uh, take away from this morning. And Lord, I, I know that, at least for me, when I go to a buffet, everything looks good, so I take it all. Uh, and guess there's some benefit uh, from doing that in the, uh, in the sense of approaching uh, this material this morning. But I also sense, Lord, that uh, you have a specific word for each specific person that is here. And you want to use uh, these things that we've learned. Certainly we'll treasure these things up in our hearts. And, and uh, though we jump from topic to topic today... In the immediate, we may forget some of the things that we considered this morning. But, Lord, you promise us that your Holy Spirit will bring these things uh, to reminder when we need them. And we ask that you would do that exact thing. At the same time, Lord, you teach us to be diligent. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take that particular set of verses that are specifically for us this morning. Each of us in our own place. And we would be diligent about meditating on some of the things You've already begun uh, to do within our hearts. And when it all is said and done, Lord, that through that marinating process, that great growth would come to each of us. And so, Lord, thank You for the wisdom of Your Word. What a privilege it is that we have it. Use it in our lives, we pray. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.